0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Raymond McCauley, Chair at Singularity University of uh, Digital Biology, the co-founder and chief architect for BioCurious, hackerspace for biotech. Uh, so Raymond, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Really good. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah, I, I've interviewed a bunch of uh, Singularity U faculty, and they have at least two lives, at least two major things going on, so what's a little bit about your background like what what are you working on with singularity and then outside of singularity
1: and it's kind of fun one of the the big lessons that i've like personally learned from singularity is to no longer work on one thing at a time um, and that really suits me so i actually started out professionally as a computer scientist and working on you know web enabling databases and stuff and then 90s and then I had had a long time interest in genetics and in nanotechnology and I went back to school to become a biophysicist. And, you know, that's a pretty big shift right there. And then ended on adding on um, molecular biology and some other things and really pursued sort of a second life as a, a biologist. And that's sort of really carried over into my work life. So I, I no longer really have one job or even, you know, any one real job. I do a lot of different things. i work for Singularity University where we advise everything from startups and fortune 500 companies all the way to governments. We, uh, work on doing a lot of business education. Uh, I do a lot of consulting out in the world and I do more and more things where I'm basically just working with these companies that are at the frontiers of biotechnology and trying to help them, uh, solve practical problems, make associations with folks who can help them out um, and, and also helping investors find the the right companies that'll improve their portfolios. So, so yeah, the, the hardest question I always answer is what do you do? And I used to be be able to say, I'm a scientist, but now it's like, well, I do a whole bunch of things, you know, where do you want to come at it from?
0: Well, since you work on multiple things, i don't know is it a trade off in terms of focus like how do you work on
1: multiple things without uh, you know being a jack of all trades and master of none <clears throat> which yeah the multitasking you know doesn't work <laughs> and i i think sometimes the answer is how how do you work on a lot of things like that it's like poorly is the the real answer but um it's nice i think more and more uh jobs and society are becoming Organized and you know, people talk about the gig economy. I think it's, I I like better uh, looking at it as, as project based. And so it's the kind of thing that my exemplar for this is Hollywood and how Hollywood works. You know, nobody gets um, a 30 year lifetime career working on Avatar. They, you know, work on things, a project at a time. And then whenever they're ready to do something else, whenever something wraps up, they switch to the next thing. You work with people that you've known well from other projects who are able to get things done. Those are the ones that you bring with you on the next project. Those are the ones who bring you onto things. And and so I kind of see that, you know, instead of working for one company for a long time at a time, I think we're all sort of switching around. And, and it's changed the way we communicate. It's changed the way uh, we're sort of inhabiting the future. It's starting to change the way we're educating the, the next couple of waves of the workforce, although people are still kind of stuck in that old paradigm. Um, but yeah, I, the, my, my big thing is, my big challenge is, how can I keep a bunch of discs spinning and still make meaningful progress on some given project. If I've got ten or twelve up in the air, um, and I found like if I've got twenty going,
0: chiropractic.
1: If I've got twenty going, I, I can't do it. But if I've got uh, ten going, I can do pretty well. If I focus down to three, and sometimes that's what I do, is I have to put a lot of things off. I say we're clearing this week, and I'm only working on these things until it gets done.
0: Oh, that makes sense. If you were to go back and, and rework your education, what would you do differently to, to, uh you know, now that you know what's going on, now that you have this model paradigm that you're working on, like how would you change your education or for other people that want to do what you do?
1: That, and that's kind of one of my favorite questions and one of my favorite things to examine and sort of try to enact. And, and part of that is because I've got 12-year-old twin boys, so I kind of look at them as going through Uh, the singularity and, you know, maybe puberty at about the same time. And they're going to be really literally graduating out into this new world. Um, I spent a huge amount of time trying to be somebody who was a a polymath, like pursuing a lot of things and doing it through traditional education, picking up additional degrees. And if I had it to do over, uh, I would go ahead. I I like the idea of having like a, a good firm analytical base, as an engineer and then spending less than a year at a time adding on a new field. Um, One of my favorite things to do and a piece of advice I give is when somebody's like, Hey, here's this new thing I want to study. That's totally different. You know, where should I go to school or how should I do that? I'm like, don't, don't, don't enroll in a degree plan, start a company. And you know, when you start a company, you end up applying yourself so assiduously to picking up new material and, and, you know, read some books for sure. Um, But even better than that, sometimes is like, what you really want is to have a best friend who's really good at something that you can both ask a bunch of dumb questions of and get them to sort of lead you to the edges of the field. So you understand what it's capable of and what it's not. And also be the person who's on your speed dial that you can just call up and say, listen, this thing came up. Am I looking at it right? Do I understand it? What's the next best thing? Who's the next best person to talk to about this? <clears throat> and so I think we're we're sort of replacing or or at least augmenting we We still need you know really deep experts in particular deep technical fields in 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 deep historical fields, you know just people who actually have institutional memory, but we're augmenting that by sort of webbing all of this together with people who understand enough about each one of these things to be dangerous. And so if you can't be, if you're not driven to be a deep expert, then be a wide expert and understand a lot of things and be that glue that hold people together. And I I think sometimes, you know, we call those people translators. And so I spend still a tremendous amount of my professional life translating where we you know, sometimes I'm the guy who where everybody thinks I know what I'm doing, but really I'm just willing to ask them questions. Or I'm the guy everybody thinks I know what I'm doing. And so they turn to me. And what I do is I just say, okay, so what what our user interface person said was this. And am I repeating that back right? Do I have it? Okay, so that means this for our timeline, and it means this for whenever you guys in marketing are talking about this, what do you think? And, and having somebody who can translate those things. So be, being the translator, yeah, being sense. the generalist, that helps out a lot.
0: So what kind of projects are you focused on and working on right now? What are the most interesting ones you
1: have? A um, couple of things that are kind of interesting and far out. Um, I'm working with uh, a group of folks around the world on a, a thing not quite ready for primetime, but we're trying to come up with a, a genetic engineering manifesto. Um, so some of the, especially some of the human genetic engineering work that happened late last year that was revealed to the world, uh, we've seen a lot of people who are sort of trying to, you know, signal in the field that they are trying to do good and not evil. And and therefore, you know, uh, we should put a moratorium on this until we've all had time to think about it. and And we're coming back with sort of an alternative that probably the worst thing to do is just stand on the brakes and and not do this sort of thing but to say hey what are uh different frameworks that we could adopt for saying you know here are things that should be easy and allowable here are things that are maybe treading on the edges of what people worry about and could start causing problems and you know should we what
0: are some examples of either responsible or irresponsible? genetic engineering that we've seen in, in the last
1: year or so? Well, I, th- I think a lot of people point fingers at what uh, Dr. He Jiankui did in China, where they engineered at least the embryos of uh, twin girls to remove the CCR5 protein or to, to disable it, and this confers uh, some sort of an immunity uh to hiv to to most to strains of hiv that we know of so uh and there are different people who are having different problems with this and just as an example you know some people uh think that it may have helped out but there's not a big reason to help out to provide immunity to hiv that that wasn't something that was medically necessary that doesn't enhance these the lives of you know these these young girls there are other people who are just worried about any change that we make that permanently changes the human spectrum of abilities and there are other people who are just like well yeah we should make these changes but who decides and and why should we do it but um i think that that's actually a fairly middle of the road change and people are just worried about some people are worried because it happened in china and china has a different approach to bioethics and to regulatory issues um you know they're kind of the they're always kind of cast as the the bad guys in the genetic engineering wars or the the CRISPR stakes people who are using the CRISPR technology um the the thing i think that really is a Bigger deal is, and again, it goes out to that, out to the real bad guy into the spectrum. Whenever we have people starting to make changes in the environment uh, that have a possibility of not just affecting them personally or some small area, but affecting the rest of the world, and you know, the, it seems like then we really should require some sort of inspection. We should require some sort of approval because. You know here's one person taking a risk for their gain to do something they want to do where all of us could end up being some version of loser right and so that that's an well, issue is it, and, did he do it for just proof
0: of concept or did he do it I mean he didn't do it specifically to protect him from h i v because he was worried about that he did
1: it for more for a proof of concept i would think yeah that that seems to be the case, and it's been kind of hard to find out actually you know what he technically did in the lab and uh, a lot about what his intentions were, although he published a couple of videos the day that they announced this. And it did seem to be sort of, you know, like, hey, here here's a big step forward. We can do this now. How should we do this? But that got drowned out pretty fast. And and some of it got drowned out, frankly, I think by scientists who were trying to do, you know, the signaling about how good and moral we are and uh, please don't make our research illegal, which I think was a little bit of a, a tone deaf approach. People were coming in and and worrying more about disapproval, and so they were kind of saying, "No, no, no, we'll we'll build a fence around this ourselves." And it just seems to be a a poor way to do it. One well, one of the things, and I I hold this as a truism, um, if you start taking a technology and building big fences around it, making something illegal or unfundable, undoable in certain uh, regimes and certain regulatory places in certain countries, then what happens is you've left it open to all the countries you don't want to be working on this, all the places that are sort of the sinkholes of regulatory affairs. And that's not who we want in control of these powerful technologies.
0: So what do you need? A a global conference and agreement set of standards on uh, genetic engineering? Is that what you're thinking?
1: Well, trying to come up with, you know, one version of that that would be fairly open and fairly workable that wouldn't hinder well, is, real progress. But it would also is there, mm-hmm. is there
0: is there even I realize is there even are there world congresses on this yet? Is there dialogue
1: between nations and governments on this or is it not at that stage yet? Yeah, really not at that stage. So traditional government doesn't do well in regulating any kind of high tech um and the the model that we've really had actually for a lot of high tech and and that we've adopted for everything from machine learning and artificial intelligence up to you know war robots and uh privacy and being able to distinguish things with social networks and and sensors and and what goes on there, but all the way back to genetic engineering was actually established for genetic engineering back in the 70s. There was a, a conference of scientists, the Assimilar uh, Conference, where people who had been working on recombinant DNA said, you know, we're getting into spooky territory. And people were saying, let's call a, a an absolute halt. And other people were like, no, 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 it's not that big a deal. You know, one in a billion chance that this goes wrong. And other people were like, no, 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 it's high stakes. And they all got together and spent an intense sort of, uh, two or three days talking about possibilities and what practical curbs there could be on this, but it's a, it's a great example because it sort of forged the path forward to say, here is a workable way where we can, you know, the people who know the most about this uh, and, and have the biggest idea on what could happen in both the good and bad sense can go ahead and put out uh, some sort of framework for controlling it, for saying here would be appropriate steps forward. Is that if that makes sense? Well, have
0: you thought about organizing a you know international congress on this to get the dialogue going? Because you know you and let's say in the U.S. could sit here and talk to the right players and come up with a framework, but Europe may say, "Well, that's your framework; that's not our framework." You know, and other countries may say, "Hey, we, we have our own framework; we don't even need to." Hear- so it just seems like this needs to be something that's global
1: and has at least very early uh input from a lot of nations. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and we're actually getting uh global participants in this uh but you know, we're also working uh without a budget and kind of without a net. So, uh we haven't talked about I th- I think like convening a big debating society would be tough. Uh there are people who are talking about some of this online, uh, but a lot of those uh discussions tend to be, get taken over with the worst hypothetical scenarios, which is not where you want to go. I I think a huge part of this though is being able to take this and share it with uh like the lay scientific public, people who are interested in it but no, don't necessarily have all the tools to practice it, right? And the idea there is Instead of people kind of going towards the spookiest thing, they will, it's like the, the spookiest thing is not the thing that worries us the most. The spookiest thing is, you know, some weird hypothetical, but the thing that's maybe the most worrisome, those are the pieces that you want people to understand and look at. And, and the other thing that I think is super interesting about this is I don't think that we will come up with a universal and universally acceptable framework. I think that that's, uh, not only impossible, I think it's actually would be poorly guided to try to do that. We're going to come up with one way to do it and let other people react to it. And I think, and, and you brought up Europe, right? So looking at how uh, for food, for GMOs, the US and Europe have these really diametrically opposing views, at least the lawmakers do, uh, to go ahead and say, well, okay, that's fine. That's two experiments that we're now conducting globally. Here's the experiment on, you know, The health of the population and the experiment of what's going on with uh, the cost of agriculture and the ability to feed more people and a, a growing world population. Here are two different approaches. Which one is working out? And let's, you know, we'll model it and try it and then actually enact it. And I think that we're going to see that same thing, especially with something that is even closer to our hearts than our food supply, which is what are our children going to be like? Uh, we're going to see different social groups and different groups that have different concerns. Whether it's you know disease and families, or uh, how do we pay for this, or whatever is going on, are going to come up with different approaches to this, and that's fine. We ought to try a lot of different things and see what works. I'm just, I'm just hoping we don't extinguish the flame of the new technology before it gets started, or let it gutter out in you know, inappropriate places, which is the other thing that I worry about.
0: And what other um, projects are you working on in addition to this? I
1: mean, this is like
0: huge, it sounds like. So
1: what else is keeping you busy? Um, There, I've got a couple of uh, things that are, you know, close to a job that I do where we're looking at the futures in longevity and what are some of the new technologies around that and what does that look like, looking at the futures of uh, food and food production. And some of that is on GMOs and what goes on there, but a lot of that is actually centered around cellular agriculture, which I think is kind of making the biggest splash that we've seen in both the industry Certainly and the cellular technology. Cellular
0: agriculture.
1: Oh, yeah. that This is my favorite Piece of this technology. So there's this idea that we're now putting in practice that what would it be like if we could grow our food and especially our meat, but do the actual act of growing the meat outside of an animal? So instead of having to, you know, take a little cute baby pig and feed it, and uh, you know, come up with the food and the water and the the care and the appropriate use of antibiotics, and get it up over a period of months and years. To a point, excuse me, where you slaughter it and then go ahead and throw away about 40% of it anyway and turn the rest into food and distribute that at some high price and some high price of the environment. What if, on the other hand, we could just take some cells from that pig or and maybe from the pig where you know we have known that that line has produced the best tasting bacon ever and grow those cells in a bioreactor and then go ahead and once we have this large enough piece of meat, of tissue, harvest it and cook it without hurting the animal, without doing anything that would be bad for human health, and without the environmental cost of you know raising the crops and everything by feeding it uh, microbially, feeding it at a different scale. And so this has been a huge deal. We're actually seeing forms of this hit the consumer market now with Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Uh these guys are doing plant-based proteins, sometimes with an extra component that is grown, you know, what we always say, sort of in quotes, in the lab. It's really in a big production facility. And uh, they're able to do this and make a meat that doesn't see the inside of an animal.
0: Yeah, I've spoken to another comp- a number of companies that are working on that, which is pretty cool. So far, a lot of them are just muscle burgers, but... Uh... Eventually, there'll be a full complement of, uh, you know, very real type meats with marbling and fat and gristle and all those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, being able to do the real tissue organization and grow, you know, a steak. Uh, but kind of the on the easy end of that spectrum is being able to grow something that you know looks like ground meat or acts like ground meat, tastes and has the mouthfeel and everything. And it's getting exponentially cheaper. So we had Mark Post, a professor in the Netherlands who actually has a company now to do this, to have that first 330000 US dollar hamburger that he did, I think, back in 2015. And now they are doing that for under $1,000. And they expect within the next couple of years to be able to do that for something near consumer prices. And we've got so many companies that are working on that exact thing right now and some of them i think are actually within the next couple of years launching uh actual cellular ag products that will be you know meat and look and feel like meat and cook like meat and will be on this exponential sort of uh, slope of getting cheaper and cheaper so that that's a huge deal and it's a it's a huge deal, not just because it's a new thing in the consumer market, which I think everybody you know he, okay here's a new kind of taco at taco Bell, big deal, but it's a new way for us as a, a world spanning population right, to approach how we're doing protein production. And we've got more and more people, especially in China and in India, although people don't think about India as being a big meat eating nation, it actually is um coming on board and getting into economic prosperity in the middle class where they're wanting to have you know a diet like that a western style diet with lots of meat and so being able to feed those people up through the 2050s when we hit peak world population huge deal and can we yeah, how do how much
0: it- uh, how much additional load is anticipated based on everyone wanting to have a substantial amount of meat in their diet what's the what are the estimates <laughs>
1: it looks like it more than doubles the amount of protein and meat that we produce now. And uh, that's significant. And, you know, already I think the the figure is uh, production of meat is responsible for about the use of 40% of arable land. And so I don't think everybody's going to become a vegetarian and I don't think we're going to cut down the rest of the rainforest to go ahead and make, you know, farms to feed cows and pigs. And and we sure shouldn't. So there ought to be a different way that we do it. And and it's, it's really interesting to kind of look at it as a global problem. Um, you know, it's a trade problem. It's a, a technical problem. It's an ecological problem. And so how do we come up with it? It's, it's kind of funny. I think, uh, you know, we had this idea in the 20th century that we would end up with a world government, with a UN, either in a, a scary way or an enlightened way, because we need to stop the threat of nuclear weapons. I think that we may end up doing it in the 21st century just because we need to figure out a way for everybody to be able to eat a quarter pounder.
0: Um, you said, uh, you know, with traditional uh, meat production consumption that we're throwing away 40% of the animal, maybe more. Uh, anyone that's looking at trying to not throw away 40% of the animal at least, and then- Use that existing, you know, mass
1: uh, for food. Yeah, yeah, there are a couple of interesting approaches to that, and if you kind of think about like naturally what happens, you know, to an animal killed in the wild, or if you weren't processing these things, like if it was a small-scale farm and here you had the the inedible pieces of the carcass, it turns out there are either other animals that would eat it, and that sometimes gets us into trouble in our food supply. In fact, you know, mad cow disease is. Something that really got to be a problem because people were feeding pieces of animals back into the food supply for animals that shouldn't be eating other animals. Um, but if you look at it, you know, we have insects that do this. So there's a couple of startup companies in Africa that are working on this problem of, Hey, could we go ahead and take animal waste and feed it back into insects? And could we then use that insect as animal feed or even That's a really incredible, uh, incredibly efficient protein conversion. Could we use the insects themselves as protein? And, you know, not everybody wants to have a grub taco. That's fine, but we could go ahead and process the protein into like a flour or process it into some other kind of a food additive and get the same nutritional benefits that you would get from eating meat. And in fact, get it in such a way where you don't have some of the nutritional problems. eating meat so some of that's a little a little (laughs) avant-garde not like i say not everybody wants to to add bugs to their diet but it's this really neat way of looking at closing some of those loops where we're trying to dispose of the animals Uh, and then one other thing that's kind of along those lines if you look at like alternative proteins and other uses of things um people are like well we need to switch off of red meat anyway or let's get away from fish or let's get away from chicken and, 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 and pork and, and beef and turn to fish and it turns out that we actually for about the last 20 years have been right at the edge of capacity of wild fishing and so different ways that we can do farm fish both on the land and actually in the sea like you know sea going fish farms uh, are have actually now surpassed the amount of tons of fish that we produce from naturally catching it—what we think of as a natural catch—fishermen going out on boats—is
0: that is now—is that deliberate? Because you know of the uh, of the growth of the farms, or is it because also the uh, availability of fish, wild caught, is
1: is falling? It's, yeah, we we kind of, we saw the, over the last hundred years, the number of fish that we were pulling out of the sea go up and up and up and up. And then in about the 80s and 90s, it kind of evened out and got jagged. In fact, it went up and down because we would overfish areas and crash the populations. And then... We have seen now deliberately on this smooth, really exponential curve, the amount of fish out of fish farms has surpassed that and keeps going. And some of that's got its own problems. Are those fish as healthy as the kind of fish you would get uh, versus wild caught? Uh, if we're raising them, to what extent are we you know, having the same kind of overcrowding problems and waste problems we would have with any other kind of farm? Uh, but it's, it's interesting that there was just a paper out, Yesterday it's kind of funny. So whenever um we're seeing really high rates of evolution in fish that are caught out in the ocean. And people are like, What's going on with that? And what it is is whenever you catch fish in the ocean, you basically try to keep the big ones and throw back the little ones because it's better economically to have big fish and it's better for the fishing population to let the little ones grow up. Well, it turns out, you know, Mother Nature kinda noticed this. And so uh the fish that are surviving are the smaller, slower growing ones. And so big fish populations in the ocean are now starting to show this trend of more fish that grow slower, which is a little harder for fishing, but it's it's one of these unintended consequences that, you know, technology and especially biology are so full of.
0: More fish that grow slower. Huh. <laughs> well and you
1: know, if you if you, you eat all the fast yeah, growing taking fish.
0: The are taking out the
1: breedable or the breeding adults of the fast growers? Is that why? So they just can produce less offspring. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, it's a, the big delicious animals are always the first ones to go extinct. If you look at it that way. And, and now we're actually seeing that over even the last 20 years, but over the last probably hundred years in the oceans with good intentions, people were throwing back the little ones and keeping the big ones. And, that didn't always mean they were throwing back the immature ones and keeping the post mating adults. It just meant we were doing an artificial selection for, you know, letting the small ones live. And so they're making more small ones.
0: What about a program where you're, and you're going after a certain species, I us say mackerel um, and you're farming mackerel. And then every time you fish mackerel, you know, wild caught, you throw in uh X number of farmed ones to try to make up for breedable adults or breeding adults back into that same area you fish them out of. You think that would work or is that just kind of a, would make a mess by doing that?
1: No, I, th- I think that that's like, that's a worthy way to, to try to correct the imbalance other kinds of engineering, other kinds of, or like, you know, honing that selection where you do select fish that are past. I don't know. Do fish, different fish have a breeding age? That's, that's going further than my uh knowledge of fish reproduction stretches so <laughs> but yeah there i mean there ought to be ways to do this but it's it just uh it was an interesting thing which i think will affect how we eat in the future right and this was just published in the last week and and i thought it was interesting you know it's it's something in a five-minute conversation, we can kind of come up with like, wow, oh, of course that would be how that would work. And why haven't we worried about that before? And now what do we do about it? Uh, this is the kind of thing that I love. Like, uh, and, and we were talking about projects that we're working on. This is the kind of thing I love bringing up in some of the classes that we do for kids. And kids just have you know, this natural ability to solve problems whenever they're not Trying to color in the lines whenever they're not trying to just do road memorization or some of these other things. They really want to try things out. And so giving them a forum in which to say, here's a real problem. What would you do? And then maybe come up with, you know, well, okay, let's do it. Could we raise some fish and see if it works that way? Or, you know, could we make a computer model and see if that works? And just the trying to go hands on in these different ways is incredibly. Uh, educational, but entertaining, you know, people will pursue stuff like this, just like they would pursue a video game and pour hours and hours of time into it.
0: So what do you, what's your unique ability? What are you the very best
1: at, out of all your abilities and how are you using that in the projects you're working on? Man, I would love to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, But I,
0: but you're really good at, you know, are you a great (laughs) synthesizer? Are you a great, you know, aggregator of talent? I mean, what, You know what? What are you best at, and how is that manifesting in the projects you're working on?
1: Well, I I, I was just going to say I I I would love to be the smartest guy, and but I end up in some rooms with some really smart people, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, I think kind of my my thing that I'm able to do is take uh, sometimes something that is a really difficult, complex concept, and then translate it, and you know let people grasp it and see what's going on. And be able to talk about it or argue about it or surface some of the issues and the problems. And so that's, that's really great for working on policy. And it's really great for working with investors who need to understand what are they really putting their money into. But it's probably the best and the most rewarding working with uh, kids who are just starting, you know, their trajectory in life. And encouraging them to aim really high because there's just nothing you can't understand. There's nothing you can't get your arms around if you try. And so, so yeah, that's if I have a superpower, that's probably it.
0: Have you thought about trying to um, bring kids to literally these companies, you know, for a day for like a focus group session or, you know, literally to get their input, you know, have the people that run the company, maybe they're going, they're trying to get money for funding, you know? and so they literally will do their presentation for kids of various ages and if the kids can understand it that's a good signal that investors will understand it maybe there's um, there's a way to get kids involved literally in some of these discussions and get their input and it may sound like how would they know but maybe like you said because they're uh, they're just so open-minded and creative they might
1: give a, i don't know they might help the process I you know that's a really great idea if for no other reason, because kids will come up with, you know, well, why can't we do it this way? And then it leaves the adults to say, well, this is why we can't, you know, or if they're like, yeah, well, why can't we do it this way? And I think sometimes as a parent explaining something to a child, sometimes they'll, without meaning to talk me into something, they will make me question my own assumptions because that's what they're doing. You know, that's what kids are born to do is question the world and learn how to live in it. I I love that idea. We, we haven't done that with, really small kids we've actually we've done a couple of programs that i've worked in with various uh agencies where we actually bring kids up through like uh entrepreneurial training and you know kids 16 to 18 um so uh american high school aged kids and say you know this is how you identify a problem and how you try to solve it and some of the things you do and there have been some really incredible results from that. I've, I've met some incredibly bright you know, children who are just on the verge of becoming these incredible problem-solving adults who work on things like uh, health or uh, disaster recovery, some of the companies that have come out of this <laughs> that rival some of the best companies that I've seen come out of Silicon Valley. Uh, the problem is then generally those kids are going off to college to pursue their education to prepare for the real world and they have to stop working on what they were working on to do that.
0: Well I can tell you like my kids are ten, twelve and fourteen and I, I really feel like they're becoming my advisors now. You know, they they are getting to that age, I would say probably twelve, thirteen and up where they really can contribute, you know? So I, I know what you mean. Now maybe very young kids, but uh I think thirteen eighteen, they they really do have a lot to contribute and they're pretty smart.
1: I get it. It's a sweet spot, right? And you know, if I if there were one thing that I could really change about <clears throat> American and then world business culture, it would be take your kids to work shouldn't be a thing you do one year a day, and you do special programs. It should be something that we do all the time because work now fills every corner of our lives. You know, you can't get away from it. You got a supercomputer in your pocket that people can always get a hold of you on, and you got to have some balance, but. When you don't, why not involve your kids? Why not get them used to this idea that they can contribute and they can do things? And I've tried to do a certain amount of this Uh, early on whenever I was doing stuff with my twins um, and I was broken up with my partner. uh, We were kind of having to coordinate like these crazy globe trotting schedules and maybe One of us would have both the kids and one of us would have one and one would have the other while we were traveling around and then we'd swap and then we would all get together. But I would take kids with me in the boardroom because I didn't have any other, you know, I'm in some strange city and I don't want to go find a babysitter that I trust. And I'm just like, hey, guys, do you mind if Trent sits here in colors? And then Trent would be like, you know, I don't know. Uh. <clears throat> daddy, what is epigenetics <laughs> or, or dad, daddy, right. why, why, why did that motion get passed that way? And, and if you got polite kids, you can get away with it. If you got kids who kind of know when to shut up. But I think that that it's tremendous because kids get to see what you do and they get to contribute to some extent. They get to ask questions. If we did more of that, I think we would have people who are better suited as they grow up for not, you know, to be a. Peg in a a hole in some job, but to really be agile and solve problems, and that's that's what we need, and it's what we want, it's what we hope for for our kids too.
0: Yeah, I grew up thinking, you know, walking by like a a
1: store and thinking,
0: "Wow, how could someone own a store?" You know, I I had no concept of business, and I don't want that for my kids. I want them to maybe equally think, "All right, I can go to college, or I can start a business, or I can." You know, working a job or just, it's all equal to them. It's
1: not scary to do one or the other. It's just another option. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, you know, I, th- I think even, even, and this is kind of hard for me to say as an engineer and a scientist, but even more important than the knowledge about it is kind of that attitude. It's like, I could do that. I could give that a shot. And I think exposing them in a way where you're empowering them does exactly that. You give them that confidence and not a false confidence. It's, you know, it's like, Hey, let's try this. And Oh man, that didn't work. Well, okay. What do we do? We got to pick ourselves up and try something else. And the ability to try a lot of things and work on what's important to you and keep on doing things.
0: Well, very cool. Well, Raymond, this, um, this conversation followed exactly, uh, your method. It covered many things and I think it was good. So <laughs> what what's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work and than any of the initiatives that we spoke
1: about. Um, I well, as you can probably tell, I love talking about the things I love talking about. So, anybody who wants to reach me or learn more about it or ask any questions, find me probably on LinkedIn. It's the easiest way, and I'm I'm one of the prominent Raymond McCauley's. and so it's not hard to to find me there. And uh, go ahead and connect up and contact me.
0: Very good, Raymond. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Rich, thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.